I'd like to invite your attention to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and specifically verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, everything that Paul has written in the first three letters the first three chapters of this letter, he has written in order to prepare the church to deal with a problem that existed in the church. So verse by verse, he has carefully built a rock-solid foundation. And again, everything that he has written up until this point was written to prepare the church to properly deal with a disagreement that existed between two prominent members of the church. And repeatedly, as we've seen throughout our study of Paul's letter, he has repeatedly emphasized the need or the necessity of unity among God's people. Paul understands the damage of ruptured unity and the havoc that it could wreak in the church. When disputes in the church are not properly dealt with, they destroy the testimony of the church to those outside of the church. God is not honored and the reputation of Jesus Christ is tarnished. You know, dissension and disagreement is the result of self-centeredness. Although it is many times couched in a desire to protect God, when in reality it's used as a cloak for self-centeredness and self-promotion. The self-centered person, they have no concern for the unity of the church. A self-centered person cares only for themselves. They care only for their own welfare. And if, if they have to destroy the unity of the church to satisfy themselves, they will gladly do that. And that's the danger of self-centeredness. A self-centered person will happily talk to as many people as they can, telling their side of the story, trying to gather sympathy for their position. They will try and gather sympathy and build a coalition by pointing fingers at others. The self-centered person would never, ever think of going directly to the person with whom they have a disagreement with. They lack the courage to confront the situation head on. And many times, if not most of the time, they really have no desire to resolve the situation, but only to turn the situation to their advantage. So therefore, they try and seek to mislead as many as they can. Again, not an attempt to defend the honor of God but simply to try and make themselves look good, to try and elevate their position or their status in the church. And even a single person or a single person or single family, excuse me, who is self-centered is more than enough to destroy the unity that God desires his people to display. You know how many water, ruptured water pipes it takes to flood your house and ruin the drywall? One. One. Likewise, it only takes one person in the church, one self-centered person in the church 
to wreak havoc in the church. But the damage doesn't just stop with tarnishing of a church's reputation to those outside the church. Disrupted unity also robs those in the church of the peace that God wants them to have and wants them to experience, that they should indeed be experiencing because they have been reconciled to God. So in the passage that we have before us, we have a series of exhortations showing us how, as God's people, we can experience the peace of God. So what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to back up, as it were, and I'm going to look at the passage as a whole, kind of take an overall survey of these seven verses, and then in the coming weeks, I'll go back and look at some of the verses in greater depth. And so this morning, to help us kind of get the lay of the land, I'm going to use a series of words and short phrases uh, that you can uh, latch on to, that you can write down, that will give you the gist of the passage that Paul has for us this morning. So here's the first word. The first word is affection. Affection. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So Paul begins by expressing his deep affection for them. He, he, here's what I really like about this. He, be, he begins by identifying with them. He is not standing outside of them. He's not some acting like some uninterested observer saying, here, let me tell you guys what you need to know. No, what he is doing is he immediately identifies with them. He immediately puts himself with them, places himself along with all of God's people who are part of God's family. So when Paul addresses them as brothers... He is reminding them that they are not alone in what they are facing. They are not alone in dealing with the persecution from outside and the dissension from within. He wants them to know that he is right in there with them. He wants them to know that there are others who are there supporting them, encouraging them, and helping them during these troubling times. You know, and that's, in essence, we would say today, Paul wants them to know he's got their back. He's got their back. And isn't that comforting to know? You know, so many times the the trouble can be exaggerated when we think that we're all alone, when we think that nobody cares, that we think that we're suffering without any outside help or encouragement. But Paul says to this group of people whom he dearly loved, I want you to know I've got your back. You're my brothers, you're my sisters in Christ, and I'm right there with you. You're not suffering through this alone. You know, whenever God's people strive to live lives that honor and glorify God, whenever God's people strive to be obedient to the Great Commission to spread the gospel, you can count on one thing. There will be opposition. Opposition will arise. Listen, if you, if, if you never want to ever have a spiritual battle in your life, well, don't worry about honoring God. Don't worry about being obedient to God. Don't worry about being obedient to the Great Commission. You know what? You'll be left alone. You won't have any problems. 
But those who strive to live lives whereby God is glorified and God is honored and seeks to reach out to people with the gospel, let me tell you, you're going to be attacked. You're going to find yourself in the midst of a fight. But that's okay because God has given us everything that we need in order to protect ourselves, defend ourselves, and to continue to move forward. So Paul addresses them as brothers, and because they are his brothers, he wants them to know that despite what is going on in their lives, their lives can be characterized by unity, by love, by peace, and by joy. There's something else to consider here when Paul addresses them as brothers. That is that he has no doubt as to the genuineness of their faith. He didn't lay awake at night wondering if they were genuine believers or if their faith was spurious. He didn't lay awake at night afraid that some of them were wolves in sheep's clothing. He didn't lay awake at night wondering if some of the devil's goats had gotten into the Lord's sheep pen. He addresses them as brothers. But he doesn't stop there. He expresses, he goes on to express his love for them. Notice what he says. This seems almost strange to our modern day ears. He says, my brothers whom I love and long for. Think about it. He's physically confined to a prison cell. But spiritually, his heart is with them. That's where he longs to be. And why does he long to be with them? Because he loves them. He loves them and he longs for them. He expresses this for them the best way that he can through his words. He longed to be with them, to instruct them, to guide them, to help them see their ways through the turbulent times that they were facing. I can just imagine his heart breaking, knowing that he could not be there for them. So because Paul loved them, he was concerned for them had great affection for them. Here's the second word. second word is admonition, admonition. So what's his admonition? To stand firm in the Lord. Remember, along with the dispute that's going on inside of the church, there is persecution taking place from outside of the church. And I think we can all identify with this to one degree or another. Whenever trouble comes, whenever we feel threatened, our first reaction is to do what? Protect ourselves. But many times we think we can protect ourselves by removing ourselves from the situation. We all have this flight or fight response. And many people, when they feel threatened, when they feel like they're in danger or something is causing them pain, many people would rather flight than fight. But Paul says to them, don't do that. I don't want you to fly away. I don't want you to try and run away. Rather, I want you to stand firm in the Lord. I want you to fight but it's important that we understand that Paul is calling them to fight in the Lord. Paul is not doing this here, nor would he ever call them to fight in their own power or in their own strength. Remember, he instructed the believers in Ephesus to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
See, he understood that in and of themselves, and we as well, in and of ourselves, we are not capable of standing firm. Our response is to get away. We'd rather run away, try and remove ourselves from it. But Paul had learned by experience, and he has told us this in the New Testament, he learned that when he was at his weakest, what? Christ was at his strongest. And the problem with many of us is because we never stay in fight, we never know just how strong Christ is. Because we would rather run away from the situation, we never learn just how powerful Christ is. But we also know this. We know that when our faith is tested, it becomes what? It becomes stronger. Say, I want a strong faith. Good, I'm glad. Jesus wants you to have a strong faith. But guess how that faith becomes stronger? Through testing, through trials, through troubles. Therefore, we don't despise the trouble. We understand that God is using that to strengthen and to grow our faith. And Paul, he understood this was a relatively spiritually young group of believers. And he understood that this may be one of the initial challenges to their faith, but it wouldn't be the last challenge to their faith. And so he wanted them to stay and fight now. Why? Because he wanted them to get that spiritual victory under their belt. Because every spiritual victory does what? It gives us confidence. We learn to trust Christ more. We begin to take him at his word. We, we prove by our own experience that he is going to deliver on his promises. But far too many times, far too frequently, we fail to do that. We won't get into the fight. We run from the, the fight, and therefore our faith is weak and flabby. It's only in the midst of the battle that we learn firsthand just how strong Jesus is. Listen, we can sing about it, we can memorize verses about it, but until we put ourselves to a position where he has to show himself strong for us, it'll all just be theory. It won't be reality. And I don't know about you, but I want to experience the reality of it, not just the theory of it. Okay? So God has provided for us everything we need to stand firm. Why did God give us his armor? Do you remember what Paul said back there? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why, Paul? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to what? To run away? To stand firm. Stand firm. So Paul says to them, I have great affection for you. I love you. I long for you. But as much as I love you, Jesus loves you even more. As much as I want your victory, Jesus wants it even more more. As much as I want you to experience unity and peace and joy, Jesus wants you to experience all those things far more than I do. Later in the same chapter, Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things, how? Through him who strengthens me. So I can stand firm, not in my own strength, but in the strength of the one who strengthens me. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So at this point, Paul turns from expressing, expressing his affection for them and giving an admonition to them. Now he's going to give them a series of experts, 
exhortations, excuse me. And these exhortations lead us to one of the most precious promises that God has given to his children, and it's found in verse 7. So let me give you the, the uh, I believe there's four exhortations here. Here's the first one, be reconciled, be reconciled. Look at verses 2 and 3. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's do a little role play this morning, would you? Everybody hates role plays, but it's okay. You're not going to have to actually do anything. I want you to transport yourself back in time to a Sunday morning in Philippi. And we're all gathered together, and there's this air of excitement in the air because Paul has sent us a letter. And we just can't wait to see, wait to hear what Paul has written to us. And so whomever, perhaps Epaphroditus, is reading the letter to us as a church. And you're sitting there, and you're on the edge of your seat, and you're taking in every one of Paul's words. Man, you're just, you're just loving what he's having to say. You're learning so much. And suddenly you hear the names of two of the more prominent members of the church being mentioned by Paul. But they're not simply being mentioned by Paul. He's calling them out. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Did the tension suddenly mount in the room? The excitement that was just there, was it pop like a balloon? Now, Paul doesn't go into any, any details about what the problem was. And I'll tell, I, think, I think I know why, and I'll show you that in the coming weeks. But this leads me to believe that whatever problem they were having, it was a problem of personal preferences, not a doctrinal issue. Say, so, well, why would you say that? If it were a problem of doctrine, do you think Paul would have kept silent? Absolutely not. Paul would have quickly, readily, gladly, emphatically sided with the one lady who was correct in her doctrine and he would have issued some form of rebuke or correction for the other lady who was an heir. We know Paul would do this because, remember, Paul rebuked Peter when Peter's actions denied the reality of the gospel when Peter would not associate with Gentile believers. So Paul wasn't scared here. It was a matter of personal preference. But he calls these two ladies out. And maybe it was just something like this. Eodia thought they should have had lilies in the church at Easter, but Syntyche thought they shouldn't have had any lilies at all. Is that a doctrinal issue? Of course not. What is it? It's a matter of personal preference. And beloved, this many times is exactly how disputes start in the church, over matters of personal preference. Disputes can easily start 
over personal preferences. Again, if it was an issue of doctrine, Paul would have waded into the fray, but he didn't. There was some kind of dispute among these two ladies. And so he does what? The word he uses is entreats, which means that he implores them. He begs them. He exhorts them to agree in the Lord. And we'll look at what that means in coming weeks. And his desire is for all of those involved, not just these two ladies, but for the entire church. He wants them all to agree in the Lord. Paul understood that a little dissension held the power of dynamite to blow the whole thing up. That's why Paul entreats them to uh, agree in the Lord. He points them back to the unity that they all share as believers. But here's, the, here's what I find rather interesting. Paul issues a call to the entire church to help these two ladies to agree in the Lord. He wants everyone in the church to come to the aid of these two ladies and help to help them agree in the Lord. Now notice, I don't believe that Paul is calling either one of these ladies to change their preferences. You can have your preferences, I can have my preferences, and still agree. I know that is foreign in the world we live in. If you don't see it my way, you're definitely wrong. Right? Isn't that the world we live in? But it should not be that way in the church. We all have different preferences. Does it mean that you're right and I'm wrong? Or that you're wrong that I'm right? It's just a preference. And preferences are formed by all kinds of things. It's, 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 your preferences are formed by your upbringing. By your background, by your age, I don't prefer the music of the younger generation. I don't understand the music of the younger generation. They quit making good music about 1980. After that, I don't know. There you go. Thanks, John. You're an old soul. Yeah. But it's a preference. Some people prefer southern gospel music. Other people don't. I mean, we, the list goes on and on and on. But we have to understand that it's just a preference. You prefer one thing, somebody else prefers another thing, you can still get along. You know, I, I, if you're married, you, you know this. If you're married, you know this. My wife does not prefer everything that I do. If I had my way... I would watch baseball every day of the year. If she had her way, we'd be watching the Waltons every day of the year. Okay? It's two different preferences. We're not going to divorce over it. She prefers one thing. I prefer another. Some people prefer Skyline. Some people prefer Gold Star. Thanks. All right. It's just a preference. So why are you banging on about this? Because if you don't understand this, 
It can cause tremendous problems in your life and in the life of the church. And so this problem was so well known, it was out there in the public, that Paul deals with it in a public way. And I believe what Paul's wanting the church to do is, is this. He's, he's saying to them, I want you to create a culture of reconciliation. A culture where forgiveness is generously and graciously offered. A culture where fractured relationships can be restored. And wouldn't it be great if every church had that kind of culture? There'd never be a church split. And I hope our church has that kind of culture or is working towards that kind of culture. And we can if we will remember that the heart of the gospel is what? It's about reconciliation. If we can be reconciled to God with all that we've done to God, surely we can be reconciled to one another through the power of the gospel. And please don't miss this. Paul begs them to agree in the Lord, which means that each one of these ladies were genuine believers. They were both in Christ. And I highlight that because that is the only way that true reconciliation can take place. Have you ever tried to reconcile with someone and they just won't have it? At some point, you have to understand that perhaps the reason there is no reconciliation possible is because one of the parties is not in the Lord. They are not in Christ. So therefore, they don't care about reconciliation. They don't care about agreeing in the Lord. They may simply be an unbeliever pretending to be a believer. Exhortation number one, be reconciled. Second exhortation, be rejoicing. Be rejoicing. Now, unity has been a reoccurring theme throughout the letter, but so, so too has been Paul's call to rejoice. Paul wanted them to see then, as well as he wants us to see now, that there is nothing in our current situation that can rob us of joy because of where our joy is found, where our joy is located. Our joy is located in the Lord. If the church at Philippi simply looked at their external circumstances, if they simply took in the fact that they were being persecuted from without, and there's a problem within the church, if that was all they were looking to, guess what? They wouldn't have any joy. Where's the joy to be found in persecution? Where's the joy to be found in dissension? Well, there is no joy to be found there. No one finds joy in those things. But Paul tells him, he says, look, if you're going to find joy, and he wants them to have joy, therefore he teaches them exactly what the source of joy is, or let me rephrase that, who the source of joy is, and he points them in that direction. He wants them to rejoice in the Lord. Now, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Let me give you a very short definition, but one that will immediately help you. To rejoice in the Lord means to stop looking at your circumstances and your situation for joy. As long as you and I look to our circumstances, to our situation, to trying to find joy, we're never going to find it. But... The moment that we look to Christ, the moment that we look to Him 
for joy, guess what? We can find the joy that we want and that he wants us to have. And we may have to do this a thousand times a day. As Christians, we have a terrible problem with forgetfulness, don't we? We have a terrible time remembering the things that we know. But we need to frequently remind ourselves, where is my joy to be found? Not in some external circumstance, not in my job, not in some relationship. My joy is in the Lord. Be reconciled. Be rejoicing. Third, be reasonable. Be reasonable. Every Christian needs to hear this. Every Christian needs to take this to heart. So what does it mean? What's, what's, what's Paul driving at here? Well, Paul is exhorting us as Christians to be gracious, to be gentle, and to practice forbearance whenever possible. And again, I'll bring this back to preferences. In our interactions with others, we are to be gracious. We are to be gentle. Again, each one of us have our own preferences. But we need to be gracious and generous with others and practice forbearance with one another when our preferences differ. I grew up in a system where I was taught to be so rigid in my preferences that if you didn't hold my preferences, I couldn't have anything to do with you. If someone didn't use the King James Bible, surely they were a heretic. If a woman wore pants, might as well call her Jezebel. Each one of those things are preferences, aren't they? Neither of them are doctrinal issues. But I was never taught to be gracious and generous over those things. I was taught to dig my heels into the soil, grit my teeth, and not let go. All through Bible college, I had to hide the fact that I was learning more from John MacArthur than I was learning from my Bible college. Why? Because a professor in, in my Bible college said that John MacArthur was a heretic. And I was an undercover MacArthur operative. See, there's no room to be allowed to hold a preference different from others. And some people are so rigid in their preferences that they will break fellowship over the smallest of things. And I believe God's heart is grieved when we do that. As a Christian, I can never, ever, never, ever, never, 
never, ever compromise on doctrine. As a Christian, I can never compromise on the gospel. But if you prefer the NASB over the ESV, God bless you. Read it from cover to cover. Memorize it. Live by it. But be gracious with me because I prefer the ESV. Right? So that Paul's, this is the point Paul's making here. He's saying, hey, Eodia, I know that you like lilies in the church. And Syntyche, I know you don't want lilies in the church. But let's be reasonable here. Let's be reasonable. It's not a doctrinal issue. So let's be reasonable. Remember the words of Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or how about this? A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. In other words, those are beautiful words. So Paul says, be reasonable, be gracious, be generous, practice forbearance with one another. Don't be so rigid in the matter of preferences. Now, why, Paul? Well, look again at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why, Paul? The Lord is at hand. Now, again, what exactly does that mean? Well, I think there are two possibilities. The first possibility is that Paul is simply telling them to remember the presence of the Lord. Remember that every word that they said and every word that you and I say, every dispute that they were taking part in, every dispute that you and I take part in, takes place in the presence of the Lord. That's why he says, remember the Lord is at hand. Remember the presence of the Lord. That's certainly one possibility. A second possibility is this, that Paul's referring to the return of the Lord. So he may want them to ask themselves, hey, would I want to be caught in the middle of this dispute when Jesus comes back? Do I want to be caught in the middle of an argument when Jesus comes back? Because when he comes back, it's going to seem so petty, so utterly useless, so unprofitable. So it could be either one of those things. The Lord is at hand. Either way, his counsel is a helpful reminder that the Lord is always at hand. And then numbers, uh, whatever, four or five, whatever. Be relaxed and respond. Be relaxed and respond. Verse Six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. I think many Christians forget that God knows every one of their needs. And because they forget that, they become what? Anxious. And they give in to worry. So Paul says, don't do that. Instead of worrying about that situation, instead of worrying about those circumstances, I want you to pray about them instead. And notice what Paul says. We had, folks, we had, I know th this hits us right where we live. Many people suffer from, from anxiety at various levels. Many people worry themselves to death. But as Christians, we need to take God's word seriously here. Okay. So Paul says, 
In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. A Christian should always be a prayer, and they should never be a worrier. Bad English, good theology. That's what Paul's saying to us here. Now, think about this. Did the believers at Philippi have anything to be worried about? Yes. You know, we use the word persecution. They were in danger of losing their livelihoods, of losing everything that they owned, perhaps maybe even their lives. We're not talking about, you know, somebody posting about us on social media. No, this, they were fearful for their very lives and their livelihood. That could cause us to do what? Worry. To be anxious. What about the situation inside the church? Certainly they could have been anxious about that, experienced anxiety about that. But God says, don't be anxious about these things. I know you're dealing with all of these things. He knows exactly what we're facing. So Paul's counsel is, take your cares and your concerns to him. Ligon Duncan had this to say about worry. He said, you know, worry is a thing we do to try and feel more in control of a situation that we are out of control of. Wham. Man, he hits it right on the head, doesn't he? That's exactly what worry is. He goes on to say, worry is a thing that we do to try and feel more in control of a situation that we are out of control of. And you know what? The ineffective thing in worry is it doesn't do a single thing except depress you and discourage those around you. It doesn't give you more control over the situation that you're out of control of. Again, all it does is depress and discourage those around you. You know, we love to talk about our problems, don't we? And I, I, I do believe that on some level that's a natural response to our problems. We want to talk about them. We need to talk about them. And have you noticed we can spend hours talking about them with a trusted friend? But I wonder how often do we talk to God in the same way that we talk to that trust, trusted friend? You know, a family member, a friend, they'll listen to you. They'll cry with you. They'll do their best to comfort you. They'll give you whatever counsel they give. They can, excuse me. But you know what they can't offer you? They cannot offer you the peace that God has for you. The peace that passes our understanding. Say, can you explain it? No. God doesn't want us to explain it. He wants us to experience it. So what's Paul's counsel? I mean, I was thinking about this this morning, and really I indicted myself. There have been times in my life where I will talk endlessly to my wife or to someone else about a situation or a problem, but I don't know how many times I've endlessly talk to God about it. Shame on me. That's wrong on my part. 
So what Paul's saying is, listen, learn to pour your, ha- your heart out to the one who can do something about it. Who's in complete control of the situation. Learn to cry out to him. Which brings us to the promise. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there is a tremendous danger of taking this verse out of context and we never experience its reality. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's think this through. Paul lays out what I've been calling for my own benefit a pathway to peace. And Paul is not saying, look, in order to experience the peace of God which passes all understanding, you have to be able to take a giant leap. I want you to leap from here all the way to the back of the carpet. Now, if you can do that, you will experience a peace like you will not believe. And we look at that and say, huh, I don't know that I can leap to the front of the carpet, much less the back. So what is the pathway to peace? What are the steps? And by the way, you can't skip any of them. What are the steps? Well, we've just went through them. When we seek to live in unity, as we reconcile with one another, when we seek to live lives of joy by rejoicing in the Lord, when we seek to live with gentleness and graciousness with one another, when our reasonableness is on display, when we refuse to live with worry and anxiety, instead choose to relax and respond properly by taking all of our cares and our concerns and our troubles to the Lord, when your life is centered on Christ, when you are focused on Christ, when you are actively entrusting yourself to Christ, then God does something wonderful that we can't explain, that we can't put into words. What is it? God gives us his peace. His peace, which is beyond our comprehension. Listen, when everything inside of you, when all of your circumstances are screaming fear and despair and hopelessness, and if you take these steps, you will have a hope and a peace that you can't explain, but you will, without a doubt, know exactly where it's coming from. It's the peace of God that passes all human understanding. But I want to emphasize to you again, you have to take these steps. Listen, if you're on the outs with someone else, do not expect to experience the peace of God. Right? If you're looking for joy outside of Christ, do not expect to experience the peace of God. If you are so rigid with your preferences that you won't fellowship with a another believer because their preferences are different than yours, do not expect to experience the peace of God. If you only talk about your cares, concerns, and problems to other human beings and never bring them to God, do not expect to experience the peace of God. But when we live in unity with one another, 
when we find our joy in Christ, when we learn to be reasonable, when we relax and respond, guess what? Then God gives us that peace that passes all understanding. The problem is we want the peace. We don't always want to follow the path. So what Paul has laid out for us is God's pathway to peace. Live in unity. Live with joy. Be gracious and reasonable with one another. Don't worry and pray. And when you follow these steps, you will experience the peace of God. You have God's word on it.